0: You're listening to Arc Radio podcast.
1: Bismillah Rahim. We are here for another episode of Journey to Success uh, with Dr. Nadim Berti and who I have with me in the studio is someone who has had his own very interesting journey to success. He's the National Advisor for the Prison Service here in Scotland and he's the National Islamic Chaplaincy Coordinator also for the Prison Service. His name is uh, Mr. Muhammad Ajmal. Uh, Assalamu alaikum Ajmal. Uh, very very it's a real honor to have you here in the studio and um i've been looking forward to talking to you about your journey to the position that you're in um success means a lot of different things to a lot of different people what does it mean to you
0: success Um, well path to success i would say i'm still on that path to success i'm still trying to find it and i think that ultimately will be decided when I die, whether I'm successful or not. So, regardless what people say, I think on the Day of Judgment, if Allah decides I'm successful, then I'll be happy. But right now, I'm trying to achieve success. MashaAllah.
1: Well, uh, Ajmal, before I speak to you about the role that you're in at the moment, which is obviously in the prison service, um, and it's a lot of um, a lot of varied activities that you have to do and a lot of uh, different issues that you have to deal with. I want to just go back to your beginnings. Uh, you were born, what, in the 60s? Uh, yes. So. And you grew up in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, what was it like growing up for you?
0: Well, you've got to bear in mind, at that time there were very, very few Muslims in Glasgow, let alone Scotland, um, most of all whom were Pakistani, uh-huh. we lived in the north side, Maryhill Road, um, colour wasn't an issue, religion wasn't an issue, we lived with other immigrant communities, notably the Irish, um, okay. we got on extremely well together, and it was very harmonious it was impoverished at that time you've got to remember this is just about 20 years after the end of the second world war or even less yeah and glasgow at that time looked like war-torn berlin there were slum clearances
1: i i remember in those days you still had areas that had you know bricks all over and half buildings and they were great areas to play in
0: as i remember that's right, it was fantastic. It was a fantastic childhood. It was um, That was a childhood for the rec- recruiting ground for the army <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> and the special forces. Right. Because each kid was <laughs> was living an extremely adventurous and dangerous lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, building tree huts, um, playing <laughs> one of our things, playing one-man hunt on the motorway. <laughs>
1: Do you know, I remember that, I remember running about on the motorway with uh, four or five guys and actually running across the motorway, which I think now people would be shocked at.
0: Yes, and chicken was the main thing and run, running underneath lorries which are temporarily waiting at the traffic lights <laughs> right. and coming out the other side, hanging onto lorries. Um, it was a fantastic act of life. Uh, nobody cared who was black or white or Asian. Um, I had a beautiful life in school. All my friends were Protestants because it was a Protestant school. At uh, night time all my friends were Catholics because they came from St Columbus. It was the best of both worlds. It was absolutely fantastic. It was an adventurous lifestyle. Living dangerously although we didn't think we were living dangerously we just thought we were having fun. It was Poverty was rife, but people lived together, people helped each other, they didn't worry about your religion, they didn't Mm. worry about your colour, people helped each other, and it was so different compared to today.
1: That's interesting, somebody used to say to me, um, growing up in Glasgow at that time, if you said you were a Muslim, the normal thing would be, so
0: is that a Protestant Muslim or a Catholic Muslim? (laughs) That's exactly what it was. Um, it was either a Protestant Muslim or a Catholic <laughs> Muslim, and um, you needed to know a, a bit of history. It was—I don't mm. think it was more to do with Protestant or Catholic. Uh-huh. I think it was more to do with the problems in Ireland, and yeah. that sort of transformed itself into Rangers and in Celtic.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so um, we actually, um, we actually experiences it in our school. It was, it was either ready salted crisps or salt and vinegar. But cheese and onion was not allowed because <laughs> the white didn't get thumped because I was a green and white packet. Green and white packet, yeah. It was very salted, was dark blue, navy blue and white, and uh, salt and vinegar was um, sky blue and white. So these were tolerated in a proddy school.
1: You know, I, I seem to recall when I was growing up that I kind of naturally gravitated towards Celtic. Because it was the same colours as the Pakistani flag, <laughs> I don't know if that's something that you
0: no, no, ever no. noticed. No, I noticed that many people from the Pakistani origin went towards Celtic, but for us, um, it was Rangers. Okay, <laughs> it was, it was all. And I remember drawing in school art at the age of four. Um, drawing pictures i think was it colin johnston or um these are um, footballers um, and that was an art you know, there was a i forget the names now but it was always rageous footballers we draw an art wow okay well
1: interesting well you know everybody's parents mean a lot to them yeah. uh obviously there are primary role models what do you think you learnt from your parents that you've taken with you today?
0: My father, um, he worked, came to his country, worked as a miner.
1: In in a, in a an actual mine? Yes. Like a coal mine? Yes, coal mine. And Where then he, would that have been?
0: Um, um, you know, um, because that would have been before my birth, so I'm not, all I know he worked as a miner, so I'd been probably around maybe the Gardkosch area, right, because okay. my father came here alone and my mother came afterwards. So um, then he went, on to become in a foundry as a slag worker, which is one of the most arduous jobs you can get, um, and then you worked on, went on to become a degreaser in singers and eventually a degreaser
1: means let let's get this right. This is taking the grease out of the machines.
0: Um, degreaser is a horrible job. It's um, you. It's you working. I think car would uh, fluorochloride or something—it's a degreasing agent, uh-huh. which is highly flammable, and it actually to take grease off metal before it's assembled, before it's used to assemble cars or um, sewing machines or whatever it is, and it's uh, putting metal into huge vats of this boiling liquid, and it has a detrimental effect on one's health, especially one's lungs. My father eventually died of that bronchitis. Okay. Um, and he was always suffering from that because of the effects of that. The mining, the foundry job, and uh, the degrees job it had a detrimental effect on his health. And he eventually died of that. Um, Your
1: dad came over here uh, when, roughly, to 1960. 1960, and he passed
0: away? Um, he passed away in 2004. I see. What I learned from my parents was the ethics of work, you know, they worked really hard and you always saw them working, working, working. Mm -hmm. Um, He was always working, we hardly ever saw him, he was in the factory either night shift or early shift and when he was at home, me, um, my mother and father, they were just working, cleaning out the house. Mm -hmm. Cleaning the carpets, and um, painting the house, Um you, I saw them nothing but do work all the time, and the other thing they had was the value for other um, value for humanity. I remember my father when the areas he always worked in all three possession um, professions, um, as a labourer, as a miner, as a slag working a foundry and as a degreaser they were all mainly of Punjabi immigrants Mm -hmm. and you don't need to speak any language but Punjabi because everybody was working there was Punjabi excepting the foreman who was scottish and white Uh, yeah and when the foreman would when my father was ill and the foreman came to see my father in a in our home it was like almost Prince Charles is coming <laughs> Right We all had to have a bath My mother put bro cream on our hair And put on our new clothes Because the foreman is coming
1: The foreman is coming, okay And he's white
0: And he's coming to our home It was like a huge privilege This is bearing in mind This is 1969 or something And the foreman is coming to our home and This is
1: 1969? Yeah Okay, so this is quite far on then. Yeah, this. Uh, there's a bit and there's a lot of obviously there's a big um, immigrant community now around.
0: Uh, well, it was nothing compared to what as as it is today, but it was there was pockets of immigrant communities. They would be around the North Mary Hill area, Charing Cross area, mm-hmm. and you'd get around the Gorbos area. Mm-hmm. Um, Pollock shields hadn't come to existence yet right. then, because what would happen is the people, the Muslims who would get richer in the Gorbos would tend to move then into Pollock shields and buy the house from the Jewish population right? Okay. Um, and the Jewish population would then move up further afield. To uh, Newton so Mairns or, yeah. yeah. Yep. And then and on the north side what would happen is the Muslims are living in the north side as they progressed and got more money they would tend to move further afield around, maybe around the university area. But but the ultimate goal was Bishop Briggs. Oh really? (laughs) Yes, it was Bishop Briggs. Was was the first, um, just like the Muslims from the Gobbles would move up to (laughs) uh, Pollock Shields, from Pollock Shields to Newton Mend, The thing with the Muslims up here was was Bishop Briggs. Okay, that's Um, interesting. um, And then Bears came on later. (laughs)
1: Interesting. You obviously, I mean, that's a, a fascinating time um, for to hear about, um, those days in the, the early 60s. You went to school, and it
0: was a multicultural school, you said? Well, the first school was Napier um, APS Allstate school, and it was predominantly um, Scottish, white, indigenous people over there, with um, a small number of um, Asian families. Then our house got condemned and knocked down by Glasgow City Council, Mm -hmm. and we had to move to Charing Cross, which was like a totally different world, I've never seen so many Asians compared to uh, Napier Soul Street um, and Charing Cross. Well I I grew up in Charing Cross
1: as well, and uh, I remember it was always, it it always felt like it was a, a kind of Asian ghetto.
0: That's right. And funnily enough, I never knew this. Mm-hmm. It was just when I was doing a bit of research on a tragic incident, Andrea Hedger was murdered there in, I think it was 1977.
1: That's right. Andrea Hedger was a young girl who Bank was, School. I think, in Primary 7 at Willowbank School yeah. and um, was, went missing and was found basically murdered um, and found in, I think, one of the, her body was found somewhere, I think. In Ashley Street. In Ashley Street. Um, which is right in the heart of Charing Cross and this was about 1976,
0: yes. 1976 yeah. uh, I never knew this but to my horror, that was a red light taste district but we lived in it and we never even knew it well I, I know
1: exactly what you mean because I only found out afterwards that uh, that area of Charing Cross had high number of brothels yes. as well and but like you said when you're a young child mm-hmm. you're not aware of this you just think you're just living in an area and yep. people are just quite friendly
0: that's right that's, uh, but it was a uh, so that had um, an impact living there had a huge impact on my life and um, for the first time in my life i'd actually met chinese people the first time in my life i'd actually met black african people mm. which i'd never had the opportunity at um living in mary road the first time in my life I'd, and it was like a shock to me and it was like a very multicultural place and it had a certain warm cosmopolitan feeling to it I think that's probably because the impact mm. of the university of Yes, there. yes. They had a high percentage of university students there. yeah, And things were quite cosmopolitan and quite sort of chilled
1: out in a hippie way. Interesting. And, and of course it was the time of the hippies because mm. now we're getting into the 70s. Yes, that's right. And you said something to me earlier on, um, which I didn't know about. I'm a huge Muhammad Ali fan, mm. and apparently Muhammad Ali came to yes. that part of the world, which I did not know had ever happened. Can you tell me a wee bit about that?
0: Yeah, well, Muhammad Ali came, I believe it was 1965. He came to the Oak Bank Hospital as well. Which and is where Oak now? Which Bank. is uh, That would be on Great Western Road. The on Bank. Great Western Road, yes. Um, it was a hospital which I, my mother gave birth to me. <laughs> right. Um, and he also toured that area. There was a boxing gym. Yeah. And... As far as I know, he came into the boxing gym over there in Ashley Street, and there was a boxing... In Ashley Street? Incredible, right? And then Muhammad Ali came there, and he also toured the Gorbals. Right. And and one of my friends, um, Liaqat Ali, who was just just a young boy, maybe about 10 years old at that time, and he said, I was playing the streets, and all of a sudden, um, this huge entourage came... Uh, entourage came, and there's a guy in front of the entourage, a big black guy. He said, he picked me up by with one hand and shook me and put me down, and he said it was Muhammad Ali. Wow, wow. <laughs> and, um, so, and funnily enough, Liakad Ali named his first son. Muhammad
1: Ali Muhammad Ali mashallah, what, That's what a story it would have been something to have had mm. a, a kind of camera phone in those
0: days that would have been some picture yeah, well the actor's about now 65 or something and he meets I sit next to him in the mosque every day right and right I say, and I said you and I always joked to him he said Muhammad Ali picked you up and shook you up and then <laughs> we. back down again I
1: think it would be great to get him on uh, Radio Ramadan and, <laughs> and hear about that story mm. You you said something else about uh, Muhammad Ali at that time meeting a boxer.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, um, well, there's a story going on. I met a boxer called the Black Panther. The Black Panther was a Nigerian um, boxer who had um, mysteriously gone blind. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that Muhammad Ali had to also admit that boxer at that time. Mm-hmm. So that needs to be um, verified. But that was one of the um, one of my West Indian friends. At that time, who had told me that story. Um, mm. So, Muhammad Ali had come. Um, and I believe Muhammad Ali, at that time, when he came here, he was not known as Muhammad Ali. He might, have he might still have been Cassius Clay in fact. Yes. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Lee. And he had a fight, I think, in the Bella Houston. Arena or something. And he was subject to a lot of racial oh, racial abuse.
1: abuse. Yeah, I think uh, that's right. In mm-hmm. fact, then uh, decided to fly out. <laughs> that's right. In fact, I read a little bit about that. Um, just through google and i was shocked that he'd actually even been in glasgow at that time um but yes he had and he didn't have a good time apparently no. uh, uh, i think he had a uh, it was somewhere he had a exhibition match
0: and he left quite quickly after that yes but i can imagine that bella houston just near coven and what coven would have been like at that time okay well you you found
1: yourself from there um you you'd left school and went into engineering I believe. Yes. And you were an engineer for quite some time. And how did you end up getting into engineering and why engineering?
0: Well in my school only three people went to university. My goodness. Uh, and um, the only reason I went to university was once I um, um, myself the school file alarm, and, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I got six of the best from the headmaster and he asked me then he said to me, after belting me and thumping me, he said, "You're quite an intelligent person, but the way you're going, you're <laughs> headed for Borstal." Yeah. And he said to me, I quite clearly remember. And
1: Borstal him. is just <laughs> to let some of the viewers, the listeners, know what what is Borstal, because I think <laughs> some of them might not even have heard of Borstal. Borstal is a a
0: secure home or a prison for young criminals. For young right, okay. <laughs> and he said, and he said, you and you won't get. A cup of tea and a digestive biscuit from a social worker in Boston, he said. <laughs> right. um, and if, I don't know if anybody's seen this film, Scum. It's all about Borstal. Yes. Life in Borstal. Yes. How very hard, brutal, very brutal movie. Brutal, yes. Yeah. And it was true. It, that's what Borstal was like, where rape was predominant. of youth. Oh, really? Um, and he said, "That's why he said to me, and you won't get a cup of tea and a and a digestive biscuit from a social worker." He my said, goodness! He said, "You're clever. Why did you go for a degree? Nobody mm. can take that away from you." Yes. I went. What's a degree? I asked my brother. He said, "That degree." And i being in mind. This is 1977 or something. 19. Mm-hmm. Um, there was only two universities here. It's very, very that's right.
1: Strathclyde difficult. and Glasgow it was University. university.
0: Yeah. It's very difficult to get to university. Very few people had degrees. Something appealed to me. He said, "Nobody can take that away from you." I went, I want something that nobody can take away from me. Uh And what was the other prospect? Working in my dad's shop, um, which my, not my dad's shop, it was um, my brother's shop, and my dad was a partner in it because he had been laid off from his um, job. And my father just helped out in it. We took it as our father's job, it was my brother's um, shop. And a life of just saying, yes, dear, no, dear, (laughs) and... um, Twenty Benson's heads, twenty Capstan. You know, and um, uh, uh, that's all it was. Yeah. And then, so the idea of a degree appealed to me. Also, I wanted to escape from poverty, escape from working the shop all my life. Mm. So I went for education, and can I say, I recommend education for everyone. Mm. Uh, it's extru- um There's this thing going on just now that university education is secular education and all this rubbish mm-hmm. and it's not Islamic. This is total poppycock. Mm-hmm. You know? All education is from Allah. Allah gave the education to the prophets. MashaAllah, yeah. You know? Yeah. The very first education that was given to a prophet was an education of language. Mm-hmm. Was, was given to the prophet Adam. Adam, yeah. yeah. And Allah taught the prophet Idris, who was a king at that time, mm-hmm. also how to be he invented a needle and to become a tailor yeah the prophet abraham was um was uh, his father was a mason a stone mason mm-hmm. you know the prophet Esau islam was a carpenter the prophet um Noah islam was um an engineer he was a an engineer in naval architecture fluid mechanics you know so all of this um prophets were taught um agriculture. Trade, you know, and all this is Islamic knowledge. It's up to us how we use it. Yeah, Um, do we use it for the betterment of of mankind or the detriment of mankind? And that's the same with Islamic knowledge. Mm. People can go to dar alums and madrasas, they can use that for the betterment of mankind or the detriment of mankind by creating wars, you know, and polarizing societies. So, I would say, by all means education is a huge thing to have and people in those age that day and age they came from Pakistan they appreciated the value of education absolutely yeah they wanted their offspring to have an education because they were deprived from it themselves yeah like my father or if they had an education in Pakistan they realized the wonderful opportunities to have an education over here
1: yeah so really, the, the, as part of this journey to success, um, really what comes up again and again is, even though you might have adverse circumstances and you may not have come from a rich background, but education is, is one of those things that elevates you and suddenly takes you forward.
0: Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think the, an impoverished background is actually an advantage. Advantage. Because, because I found at university... I was far more well equipped um, than than my companions, who came from a well-off background a middle-class background. Um, whereas you come from an impoverished background, you're the underdog. You're fighting all the time. Absolutely. And when you come in university, uh, it's different from school. You can handle. You know, it's it's like a natural progression. Um, whereas I find. My friends who came from middle class backgrounds—they were struggling at university. Whereas for me, it was just natural. It's
1: because at university you're no longer spoon fed like you are at school, Mm. Uh, and you have to actually be resourceful yourself. And if you've come from a poorer background, you learn to become resourceful. You learn to rely on yourself, and you learn to you develop something else that I sometimes call grit. That's right. Which is that quality that you have, that I'm going to make a success no matter what.
0: Yes, that's right. And, um, and the fact that we were deprived of, let's say, the advantages of other people in well-off areas, in our schools, it turned, in later on in life that turned out to be a, an advantage in life. In our school, it wasn't really expected for you to go to university. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was expected for you to leave school and have an apprenticeship in British Rail, or an apprenticeship in Rolls Royce mm-hmm. or somewhere. That was expected of you. School for university was not expected. It was a phenomenal experience to go to university. Mm-hmm. I came in contact with Hong Kong students. I came in contact with Norwegian students. I came in contact with middle class family students, they, I came in class with German students, and Malaysian students, Singaporean students, it was a fantastic experience, it actually made a person lose his bigotry and prejudice.
1: That's interesting, yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Because when you're living in your own cli- yeah. little niche, you're a very prejudiced person and I actually real, I actually realized this might find strange. Mm-hmm. Hong Kong, Germans, Norwegians, and Malaysians—they're humans just like me. And um, mixing with these people, it was such an honor to learn about their cultures, their lifestyles, and um, to share food with them at their mm-hmm. hostels or mm-hmm. to invite them at, at, at my own home and to share food with them. It was—I think—it's people saying, how do you reduce extremism and radicalization and all these things? Well, the university life was a huge step. If we take it in the right manner and we don't go there and go to another niche, you need to actually mingle. Yeah. Mingle with, uh, not, just, not just go there and set up Muslim societies or Muslim clubs. You need to actually mingle with, the, with everyone at university and find out, and it has a huge impact. A stabilising impact on one's life and character.
1: So that's interesting. Do you think that, uh, you know, when you go, you know, when you often, when you go to university, you'll have the Islamic society and this particular Islamic group. Do you think that there's even a negative aspect to that?
0: Can I say something? I never entered the mosque until the age of 25. Mm-hmm. And at university, I was not in an Islamic society mm-hmm. either. Um, and that had it had a disadvantage, it means I later on in life had to catch up in my Islamic um, mm-hmm. um, deficiencies, mm-hmm. but it had a positive impact in my life in the fact that I was there to mingle with everyone and learn about um, um, humans. You know, but what is Islam all about? It's about mixing with people and learning and contributing to humanity. Mm-hmm. Being a... And if you can't have that thing and be just isolated, it's just, it's really non-productive.
1: Let, let me also ask you, you You obviously, we'll get back to that, but you were telling me that you'd gone into engineering, obviously, after university, and you'd spent quite a bit of time in engineering, but then you decided to leave.
0: Yeah,
1: well... Or at least you felt that you'd you'd outgrown it. Yeah, well, you see,
0: I'd Graduated in engineering. It was in nineteen eighties. Jobs were extremely difficult to find. Norman Tebbit said, "Get on your bike and look for work." Mm-hmm. That's exactly why I did. That's right. I got went to Manchester, applied immediately, got a job. I was successful as a consultant engineer in industrial design and development, and I was. It was a glorious job. It was a fantastic yuppie job. Mm-hmm. Uh, my own car. Um, lunch, at lunch, huge lunch expenses, um, dining at fam- f- um with customers at famous um, spots like the old Trafford um, grandstand, um, where it's the cricket club or the football club, taking people out to the races at Haydock, buses full. It was a multi-million-pound venture, um, but there was an aspect of it which was getting to me all the time, Ev, that aspect was then the designs that I was getting, I was involved in the automotive, um, the automobile industry, major food and drinks, defence industries around that area, um, um, all the major industries, uh, metal melting, um, the, that was around in North West England. I would be a consultant to to them, but there was a thing that was getting to me, and that was, well, at heart, I'm very much a conservationist. Mm -hmm. I'm very much a naturalist. Yeah, I love the open life. I want to conserve energy. I'm very much not only conserve. Resources, but conserve humanity. Mm-hmm. But the designs of which I was getting more and more involved was, I say, as I felt was the destruction of life right. and destruction of the world. And it gets to a point you can't live with that any longer. Yeah. Uh, I took a trip with my friend to the West Highland Walkway mm-hmm. from Glasgow to Fort William, which was an epic point in my life and turning point. I decided no. There's more to life than all this um, yuppie life. I need to do be who I want to be.
1: So you you along your journey you had a turning point. Yes. You and and you felt that something wasn't integrated in your in your soul and your psyche. It's your your head and your heart weren't really. Would you would that be right? You weren't really matched up.
0: Well I was only doing this to escape from poverty and to Mm -hmm. say I've made it, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't the real me, Um, and the wage was excellent. Mm In 2005 the people who I trained, because Mm -hmm. I was a graduate management um, trainer now, Mm -hmm. I trained people, I coached people into engineering now, came up to me in 2005, tried to head me all the way from Manchester and offered me £110,000 to go back per annum. Wow. This is back in... 2005.
1: Right, okay.
0: It was an extremely difficult choice to make. At that time, I was earning £70 a week in Central Mosque, teaching kids um, Arabic grammar. It was extremely, extremely difficult. I was shaken and I said no. And And then I thought, God, you know, what have I done? 110000 and I'm £70 a week, and bearing in mind I refuse to sign on, I believe, although it's permissible, I believe if one has got the capacity, you mm-hmm. should use that capacity and refrain from these things that make a person impotent in his instinct for survival. Interesting. Yeah. So £70 a week was all I had to live on. I turned it down and I'm so glad I turned it down uh, because the future ahead was much was, was bright
1: So you, obviously this was a turning point in your life where you turned your back on your life as an engineer you had an epiphany I would say and you decided that you needed something that was more nurturing to your your heart and your soul and you turned to Islam
0: Well, I think you know the journey in the West Side Walkway. I recommend Muslims, you know, to go and walk the hills. And I'm so glad, so glad. In a recent research, I was found out there's an organisation called uh, Beards and Boots or Boots and, Be- and Beards. Yeah, yeah. and Beards, yep, yep, and they're
1: and, they're well known. They're they're working on Radio Ramadan as well. They're um, an
0: excellent organisation. Can I yeah. say? I now I wish I was. Twenty-seven years younger than I, I can join them. Um, I think you can
1: still join them. Believe me, I think you'll do better than some of the people, including me, on their walks.
0: Well, I've walked the West Pennines, the East Pennines, parts of the Hindu Kush mountain range, mm-hmm. to the Silk Road to China, the West Highland Walkway, sleeping out rough all the time mm-hmm. in a tent. But I was so glad organisations like this. are said, and another organisation which has, uh, which has, uh, sold writers. I so raised yes. by this because these are two things which were a huge impact in my life. Cy- uh, riding my bicycle and um, hill walking. And I think that this was these were the things that were a major factor in changing my life. Mm-hmm. Um, on weekends I used to go cycling my bike um, around the East Pennines. Um, and I would ride my bike 64 miles in four hours. Mm -hmm. Just being alone there and just riding my bike, it was a wonderful experience. And other weekends I would go hill walking Mm -hmm. um, in the East Pennines, the West Pennines, or the peak area. And this really bought that thing inside me, which I didn't know Mm -hmm. I had. It's called the Don't Know the Don't Know. They don't know, they don't know. Well, <laughs> yeah. what, do, what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, I've just taken a course in the Landmark Forum. And okay. There's a there's a there's there's an aspect of one's life. There's three things. The things that we know, mm-hmm. which is the knowledge we have. Mm-hmm. The things that we don't know, and we know we don't know them. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge area of the don't know, and we don't know we don't know that. So th- these are the things that you're... Completely unaware
1: of basically yeah, unaware of your blind spots your blind spots. Yeah,
0: and I thought that my one of the major blind spots was I'm um, a Conservationist I want to conserve life okay. preserve life this is
1: something that you realized about yourself.
0: Yes and there was something waiting to come out all the time. So to so tell me you you uh,
1: What what did it involve then you, you said you hadn't been in a masjid until you were about 25? so how did you engage with Islamic life or is the Islamic community, well, how did that start?
0: Well my companion, who was with me on that walk, was my best friend, the only person in life I looked up to. He was a Royal Marine Commando, very, very strong. A Muslim? Yeah, um, he had converted to Islam. Oh, really? Okay. Um, very vicious, strong. Um, not only that, he was a PTI, a physical training instructor of the level of a sergeant. And um, he's the only person I looked up to in my life. He was my friend from school. He was a huge coach for me, a huge impact in my life. And it staggered me that he's become a Muslim. Okay. It just took me aback. I could not understand this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The very thing which I ran away, was running away from life, not because of running up. It wasn't because I didn't like it. It's because the bad experiences uh-huh, uh-huh. were there. The bad publicity of people getting beaten up in mosque, which I said I will never ever get beaten up by anyone. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and that was it. Um, and the other thing was, I used to sort of, negative. People go, young kids going to going to mosque, and just before they enter the mosque, they put their white skull cap. And just to come back out, to take off the white skull, pack, put it in the back, back pocket. To me, that was seen as a sign of weakness. Okay. You either wear it or you don't wear it. Okay. Why do you have to do all this? Um, so, and, and you'd hear stories of people, well, not stories, actual fact, my older brother's best friend's nose was broken when the teacher stuck him, struck him on the face with a cane and broke his nose.
1: I think, I think in those days, I think in the past, I think the uh, training has been maybe a bit more hands-on well, <laughs> or brutal than maybe then, then it is now. I think, I suppose that's the legacy of yeah. of being trained from Pakistan, where, you know, corporal punishment, people had different views to it.
0: That is the case. But remember, when we do that to kids, we're not emboldening them. Yeah. We're actually entice, making them into cowards and bullies. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, We're making them to bullies and cowards. Yeah, that's because, true. Um, that has a negative impact on their life. Mm-hmm. I never went to a mosque, regardless of the constant, I would never ever go, regardless of my parents' <laughs> coercion, physical coercion, I would not go and be turned into a coward. Um, because that's the effect of bullying has on people. It isolates them, or you become. A, if you're bullied, you tend to become a bully. So,
1: so tell me. So you 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 went, you you started basically educating yourself. You must have had some uh, sort of training uh, or.
0: No, I wouldn't say. I I would say education. I would say it's dangerous to educate yourself. Right. Um, I've always had teachers. I've Mm -hmm. always taken teachers, my education from teachers. There's a a period in your life you need to have teachers. You cannot do without teachers, especially in Islam. Mm -hmm. You will need to have a teacher. Yeah, and there's a period in life when you've outgrown that um, taught um, component, you can go into a further component which is called research. Mm -hmm. That's just like university. And the undergraduate is taught PhDs are uh, research. Yeah. So after that foundation, firm foundation of being taught is taken away, then you can go into research. I've always had teachers. Um I've and I have from the beginning, although I was at a later age, 25, 26, 27 I took on teachers to teach me. Um Self-taught is experiences, experiences which are self-taught. Yeah. But education, the initial education foundation must always be to a teacher, I would say, um, to build that foundation. Otherwise we we'll go astray, we'll start making our own things up. Yeah. Um, so it's all, and I'm glad to say that from, even at the age of 25, I've had the greatest of teachers in Islam who've taught me <coughs> um, mercy for the universe. which the Prophet Muhammad says, they have taught me mercy for mankind, mercy for the universe, so that's, I've always had that and if anything from that starts to diverge, I leave that teacher, sorry, I mm-hmm. said okay, this is, where our, um, this is where we diverge and, and find something else. And then when you've got <coughs> a firm foundation, then you can do your own research.
1: Now you, obviously, you, let's move now to the area of, you know, uh, study and work that you've kind of been engaging in for the last sort of 10 or 15 years, which is the prison service. And How did that come about?
0: It was actually 23 years now. 23 years, okay. When I left my... Consultancy job. There's a period until four years. Mm-hmm. When I was actually studying Islam. Mm-hmm. I was um, learning about Islam, building up that deficiency from from an infant to the age of twenty five, mm. and it took four years of, and it's still is still going on, um, learning about it in nineteen ninety four. There was an opportunity in Central Moss, Glasgow, for a youth and development worker. And mm-hmm. uh, people at this time had known that I was a consultant engineer, and uh, they were quite impressed that this mullah-looking person now who's got mm-hmm. a beard, so Archimedes, is actually a consultant, was a consultant engineer. Mm-hmm. He's got a degree in engineering, and also he's got, he studied for the postgraduate diploma in marketing, right, uh, yeah, which okay. is a some a degree which my work... Uh, previous um, engineering, due to engineering, I had to study for marketing as well. Yeah, because I was working in the marketing department of a, of electricity, and so when I went there, the the elders of the mosque, um, uh, <laughs> were notably um, Bashir Man, Doctor um, Akram, and a Mr. Taj Bhatti. Yes, known <laughs> well. You know well, Mr. <laughs> yeah, Taj Yeah. Yeah. They were highly impressed yeah. that this mullah-looking person who wears a sawahak, he's got a yeah. beard, he's actually educated Yeah. and I found that these people had a value for education and it was easy meet for me to get that job as a youth and development worker yeah. at the Central Mosque. I had my own um, office in 1994. In the Central Mosque? Yes. all right. I had okay. my own office in 1994, youth would come to me. And I would talk to them about the experiences of life and get, coach them into careers. Um, some who have now become doctors. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and they are now doctors. And, the stu- and there was an element, there were some inmates who were doing community work from HMP Mhm. And they would be handed over to me. I see and I would work upon them. One of them has now passed away, a very famous gentleman, I don't think I should mention no. them, and one of them is still there. And then in 1994, I got an invite from HMP Low Mosque, mm-hmm. to, by a Reverend W.D. Crombie, who's saying that he seeks help from the mosque to engage with a non-Muslim inmate who is very violent in nature, but he wants to know about Islam.
1: All right, Okay.
0: And it was decided by the Central Mosque, uh, um, by the uh, by the I can uh, by I think it was Mr. Bashirman or Dr. Acton mm-hmm. that I should be the one that should go there because of my background, and it should not be the Imam. <laughs> it should be me, and. I went there, it was a fantastic experience. I met this skinhead who was about six feet five mm-hmm. and who had hatred on all of his knuckles, scars on his face. <laughs> right. And uh, according to the inmates, uh, according to the prison officers, he was extremely violent in nature. There was two prison officers there while we had a meeting with him and he, we talked about Islam. And to my amazement, there and then he accepted Islam.
1: Wow. But
0: Alhamdulillah. It was a very emotional experience. And I asked him, why, why on the earth did you want to become a Muslim? And he told me a very inspiring story, which I don't think I've got time to tell, but I was really inspired by this.
1: Well, I'd maybe like to hear a little bit about <laughs> it, because now that you've brought it up.
0: Well, basically, he was part of a skinhead gang, mm-hmm. and the leader of that skinhead gang was his best friend, his girlfriend was Turkish mm-hmm. and she would not let them drink in the sitting room and chuck them out and said, go and drink and bearing in mind that she's having an, an extra marital mm-hmm. relationship and, but she I said "Why?" he said I would ask why aren't we allowed to drink in the sitting room she said the book of Allah is there. Right. He said I don't know who Allah is but all I know is that Allah must be great <laughs> right. he said if me and my best buddy can't drink in that room and we are violent we are thugs who he said you don't know all our life has been involved in this we can't drink in that room because our book belongs to Allah <laughs> right. he said all I know Allah is great and right. whenever I'm in trouble I'm drunk I'm wrapped up in a, around a lamppost I'm in prison I'm in, I'm in a I'm locked up in in the police station. He said, all I know is I shout, Allah, help me. Allah, help me. Allah, help me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He said, said, the Reverend comes, he tries to talk to me. And I say to him, I want Allah. I want Allah. I said, and that's where I came onto the scene. Wow, Okay. I want Allah. I want Allah. So I talked to him about Islam. And that he told me that story. And that in nineteen ninety-four sparked of my career in prisons. Wow. So it was a I remember it as vivid, twenty-three years on today, I still remember that story, I still remember the name of the skinhead, I still remember his mm-hmm. height, mm-hmm. his scars on his face, the broken nose, hate written over his knuckles, and when he when he accepted Islam, the emotional experience that there was. He jumped up to embrace me. The two prison officers jumped up to catch
1: him yeah, <laughs> they right. perhaps he was going to <laughs> attack me. Wow. Some story. It's it's some it's story.
0: And I took that as a good omen. And I went, God, you know, at least I can say I've did something positive in my life today. That mm-hmm. was nineteen ninety-four. Mm-hmm. Uh, so was, he was on Paisley Fergusley Park. Wow. And and so
1: You're obviously you're not just a prison chaplain, but you're actually the national advisor for the prison service and the national Islamic chaplaincy coordinator. So, first of all, for the listeners, could you just tell them? I mean, you're obviously somebody who is not just a chaplain, and I think we need to explain to the listeners what a chaplain actually is. But you're also the person that trains other chaplains.
0: well, you've got to be in mind at that time, nineteen ninety four, there was no demand for imams mm-hmm. and prisons or chaplains. You can mm-hmm. call them. Um, there was no demand. I worked, came there as a volunteer, and it was it was for pastoral care and duties of an imam for the Muslim inmates, which were very few. There's probably about, about six or seven. Yeah, uh, I think um, in HMP Berlin, that Which time. is a
1: sad. Situation now because that's not the case yes. anymore.
0: Um, so there's only a few over there, and my role was just a voluntary role. I'd come into prisons, as and when they required me. In two thousand and one, it really took off because the twin towers collapsing. There's all mm. sorts of problems in in prison, and um, again they wanted somebody to go there. And Mr. Shaheen saw by that time. Mm-hmm. Decided I'm the best person.
1: Mr. Shane obviously was the president I think yes, of the of, yeah. the of the Jama'at, yes. the, the mosque committee.
0: Yeah, these were actually very forward thinking individuals. Mr. Shaheen, Mr. Bashir Man, Mr. Rabani, Mr. Dr. Akram, your father. These were f- forward thinking individuals who really helped me a lot. And um, they decided that I would be the best person to go there. I delivered um, a lecture for about 300 prison officers. The governor was impressed again. He wanted me to keep coming. And meeting. It's all volunteer stuff. Thank you for coming in. Oh, thank you very much. Nadi Masalumaleykum. Wa Alaikum Salam. I had I funded this myself. Um, I couldn't get. I needed a car. I borrowed a loan from my friend. Um, to get myself a car to go to prisons I needed money from the p- petrol because bearing mine mind don't sign on I'm only on £70 a week mm-hmm. I started selling items around my house to get money to put into my car to buy petrol to put, to put into my car um, everything I had I shouldn't be saying this I used to have milk tokens mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which uh, started selling them to buy petrol to put into my car to go to prisons Um I started funding it myself and went from prison to prison. And it got accepted that there's an imam out there. Mm. One prison heard about it, the other prison heard about it. And before I knew it, it wasn't only HMP Berlini, HMP shots wants me, Pullman wants me, um, Lowell Morse wants me. I got, it was just kind of too much. Um, and on one encounter with the governor, Um, He asked me, he said, we don't pay you. How much do you get from Central Mosque? I said, nothing. (laughs) Right. He said, who pays for you then? He said, said, I've checked my records, we don't pay you. (laughs) Right. Um, He said, I fund myself. I said, who pays for your travelling expenses? I said, myself. And he was horrified. He said, we are getting all this service from you we don't pay you, the central mosque don't pay you, and you doing this all on your own? I said, I will do my utmost best to try and arrange to get you some sort of reimbursement. And true to his word, seven months later, he actually went straight to the, as I know, he hinted, he talked to the Justice Secretary of employing Scotland's first Imam in the prisons.
1: MashaAllah. No, that sure was not. me
0: and he only and he said look it was only f- £50 pounds they, they gave me he said he said this is just a, and I remember what Dr. Akram said to me Dr. Akram he said never go to prison demanding money he said if you're good they'll come looking for you and that was the stepping stone where the first imam was employed on the eh, on the on the SPS Scottish Prison Services payroll as an imam for £50 um, a week.
1: £50 a week? Yeah. My
0: goodness. uh, But, you know, I said, and even when that was offered, I said, look, I don't need this. He said, why don't you need this? And I gave him the example. I said, you know, do you have a garden? He said, "I." And I said, who cleans your garden? He says, myself. I, I I said, well, you know, these inmates and everything, this is my garden. They're in my garden. The mess is in my garden. I said, if you don't mind, I don't need your money. I'm content as it is. He said, that's not the case. He said, he said I need to be able to let you freely roam the prison, without any without any prison wardens. That is not the case when you're a volunteer. I want to give you a set of keys for the prison. Mm-hmm. And I need to make sure that you're or the prison <laughs> payroll for that to happen. And so I got my friend the prison. I got I was the first Muslim to give me a set of keys for HMP Berlin where I could walk around freely. The whole prison was unrestricted for me. It was a tremendous experience when I got my prison belt with the chain and with what's known as the tally to be able to go to prison and draw my own keys and to walk out freely in the prison. Mm. And that was a great gentleman called Mr. Bill McKinley. And he was a tremendous gentleman, Mm. an honorable gentleman. And he helped me all the way in prison. And from there, it picked up. And in 2010, it was getting too much for me. They were asking for like-minded individuals. Mm -hmm. I said, well, um, like-minded individuals. You actually got to grow these individuals. Mm-hmm. I had people in mind outside the community who I thought was be an excellent job in the prison service. Brought them in for training, developed them as they went away, as they went along, and due to equal opportunities, then we advertised for those jobs, I invited imams and everybody to get these jobs. It was an independent um, selection panel comprising of a senior governor, head of operations and HR that would select these people to make sure that uh, there was no unfair play in it. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad to see all five people that we had trained, all five people got the job.
1: So, mashallah, from... From being a, a, a single chaplain, which is almost like some a job that you created yourself, in a sense, you've actually now trained up another five yes. individuals. So there's now a team of at least six people yes. who are who are involved in um, chaplaincy, which is basically m- tending to the spiritual needs of not just Muslim prisoners, but yes. all prisoners. Is that all, right?
0: Yes, all prisoners. We're generic in form. We cater for everyone. We're generic. Yeah, we specialise in the Muslim field, but we're generic. And at that time, they also decided then... uh, They advertised for the role for the national advisor, national coordinator. Yes. National as in Scotland or UK? Scotland, because the English system is operated by norms. The Scottish system is operated by SPS. Mm -hmm. It's two different entities and um, so i, I was fortunate enough to get that as well um, and it's been developing all the way it's been it's, i have a great team a fantastic team of forward-minded um, forward-thinking um individuals great great team i've got um you know I, I i have only nothing but high praise for them they carry they cover a cluster of jails and they travel as far as three hours to get to one jail. Mm-hmm. Um, the some cover three jails, some cover two jails, and they're extremely forward-thinking. hard. I think they're they really are a credit to the Muslim woman. Um, Arjun,
1: that's I mean, incredible story, very inspiring of how you got to that. But what do you see now as the future for the role now? Uh, and how do you see your role developing now uh, because obviously the muslim population uh, sadly is is growing um and you know this is something that i think you know worries a lot of people you know we're only i think 2 or 3% of the population and yet in prison we're overrepresented mm,
0: that's
1: so so what what do you see as how do you see the role developing, or even yourself developing,
0: in 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 that sense? You couldn't work for a better organisation that has a motto called "unlocking potential, transforming lives." Mm-hmm. That's a prison motto. Yes. Yeah. Now people want to get involved in prison, but can I say the solution to reduce reoffending doesn't start at prison. Mm-hmm. It's a holistic solution that starts before prison, in prison and after prison Yeah. and prison is just a small component. The large, um, it's it's like, um, how can I explain, it? if I can give you an analogy, you know, if you compare the police to the laundry men, yeah. right, right, they bring in the dirty washing, <laughs> right? right? And the prison, prison is the washing machine. Right. They put the dirty washing into the washing machine. We clean it. Hmm. It's it's white, pearl white, sparkling white. We send it back out, it gets dirty. The cops, they bring it back to us. We clean it, we send it back out, it gets dirty. The major part, next phase of, this, of, of the chaplaincy is getting the community involvement into prisons the Muslim community needs to get involved mm. it's it's parents need to get involved um reducing reoffending that means doing the work outside prisons
1: mm.
0: educating our children yeah the schools need to get involved mm-hmm. the mosques need to get involved in and re- in get in reducing reoffending that means outside prison yeah and when inmates are released the parents the families need to pick them up hmm the schools or the colleges the universities the career opportunities the housing needs to get involved and to make sure that they don't go back in again mm-hmm. the mosques need to get involved the Islamic we think prison dealing with inmates reducing reoffending is just the prison thing that's just a small component Mm. just for argument's sake that might only be about 15% and 85% is outside before and after Yep. Yep. is making sure they don't go into prison in the first case and then if they do go into prison is a small the small input that we're doing is a chaplaincy and then the huge input is outside once they're released to make sure they don't go into prison that means families, wife, f- parents, children, schools, further education, career opportunities, mm. housing, um, health and care in the forms of um, 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 tra- um, substance abuse, drugs abuse, alcohol abuse, um, all that is outside, that is the thing, Those that's the part of the holistic solution. That needs to take up its own responsibility. Um, prison is a small thing; we're a washing machine.
1: So, really, what you're saying is, is prevention rather than cure.
0: Yes, pre-prison is prevention, right? And the cure then will go to prison, and after cure, uh, I don't know how we call it medicine, and uh, the aftercare. Yeah, aftercare. Aftercare. yeah yep. So, prevention, aftercare is huge compared to the small... I mean, let's face it, when somebody gets ill, how many days do they spend in the hospital? Yeah, You know. maybe a week. A week? Or something, yeah. And that aftercare is a lifelong thing, or prevention is a lifelong, it's huge. Um, Replace the word with prison, with hospital, I think you understand what prison really is. Yeah. Prisons are no longer places where we punish people, they're more like, they're more hospitals. Mm to cure people. Interesting. And remember, this is organised crime. Um, not organised crime as in a uh, uh, mafioso or something like this. This is organised crime in the sense, a lot of the co- the people who have who contributed to this have got scot-free. Who's that? That's a larger community by not giving these people a chance. Schools by not giving people a chance. Education by not giving people a chance, housing by not giving people a chance, career opportunities by not giving people a chance, healthcare by not giving people a chance, all these factors combined contribute into making a criminal. But who gets yeah. caught? It's the individual. It's the individual. Mm-hmm. But the whole organised mechanism gets away scot free, and it's easy to blame the prison service. So it's not working. It's easy to play blame the cops they're not working but well, this is organized crime and mm-hmm. um, every there's a there's a criminal making machine out there you know that's got to be tackled yeah, it's got to be tackled and they have got to take the onus of responsibility themselves schools housing health care parents what um spouses children mosques faith um, Faith institutions, churches, you know, um, uh, there's a hu- housing, a huge, um, let's say, um, contributors, you know, components in that function.
1: Well, um, we've been. Having this absolutely fascinating interview today with the Muhammad Ajmal, who as I said is the national advisor for the prison service and is also the national Islamic chaplaincy coordinator, who has literally created the post of chaplain in the prison service, um, created this this job and expanded it so that there are now at least uh, five or six other chaplains. And inshallah, I think from. What you've been been talking to to me today about, there's a lot of work that is yet to be done and is going to expand. And um, I have to say thank you for coming into the studio today. It's been absolutely fascinating. It's been enlightening and it's been a real eye-opener. And we were meant to be talking for about 50 minutes. And I know that we've gone way over that. And I think that if we wanted to, we could probably have talked for another hour at least about some of this. But I want to thank you, Shukran alhamdulillah, for your involvement today. Thank you for coming in. Oh, thank you very
0: much, Nadim. Asalaamu Alaikum. Wa Alaikum. For more information and to listen to more podcasts, visit us at ARC.score or check out the ARC media app.